0: If you open up to the book of Proverbs, just by the very nature of Proverbs, I'm going to be bouncing around a little bit this morning, um, but if you'll go ahead and get your Bible open to Proverbs, you'll be ready to jump in. Um, we're continuing our series this morning that we're calling Peace on Earth. This is a little bridge series in between books. Uh, we'll be picking up and starting uh, 1 Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians in the new year. So if you want to go ahead and be reading ahead. Uh, We'll be working our way through those books of the Bible in the new year, but for this little gap in our schedule, um, we are are looking at what it means to to have peace on earth and to be peacemakers. We we serve the Prince of Peace, and so if we are going to be a follower of Jesus, um, it is important that we learn how to make peace and be a people of peace. And last week, Kevin began our discussion about the importance of being able to receive and give constructive criticism. And this week, we're going to look at another aspect of criticism. And I'm I'm entitling this sermon, Criticism and the Cross. Kevin reminded us that as Christians, we, we need to learn how to be able to listen and hear and take criticism in our lives. This is one of those areas in which pride has a way of creeping in and causing great pain and great loss if we're not able to listen and hear criticism in a godly way. As I was thinking about the idea of criticism and how costly it can be to not listen to it, I thought of, honestly, many examples. But I think one of the the biggest examples that that has always stood out to me as I've studied uh, history— which it's crazy that I'm saying this is history because I lived through it, um, but I am getting pretty old, um, as I was just reminded in the back. Uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the greatest ones that I could think of happened on January 28th, 1986. Now, some of you will remember this because, like me, you were around then. I'm not saying you're old. I'm just saying you were around then. And, and you, were, you were sitting there, maybe like me, uh, in a classroom, and the TVs were all tuned in to the same channel, and and we interrupted our normal school activities to watch something we thought was going to be something special. And I remember watching that space shuttle take off with the first teacher to go into space, and so they wanted all of the classrooms to tune in and watch this teacher being blasted off into space so she could get up there and then teach lessons. They were going to beam it back down and there were going to be science lessons and all this, all this stuff. It was, it was supposed to be this, this major story and major celebration. But instead, in horror, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of school-aged children instead watched the space shuttle explode right in front of our eyes. And as they investigated the accident and determined that there was an equipment failure, and that equipment failure was, is what was ultimately determined uh, was the cause of the explosion. And, and it was the tragedy that became the story. Instead of the hope and the inspiration and the teaching and the first teacher in space, it became all about the tragedy. A few weeks and months go by, they begin to take the pieces of the wreckage and investigate the wreckage and put them all back together. And they try to backtrack and determine where exactly did the failure happen? What went wrong? And it turned out that it was this little piece of the shuttle called an O-ring. Now, most of the devices and vehicles and machines that we use have some sort of little rubber seal in between various parts of the engine. But in this case, as they investigated, they found out that these O-rings, that they also found out that, that not only was it the O-ring that had failed, but managers had reported that they were failing. There were reports showing That these pieces were failing. That under adverse conditions, the O-ring would fail, causing a catastrophe. But the higher-ups couldn't take criticism. They didn't listen. And because they didn't listen, because they were so prideful and thinking that nothing could go wrong, because they've never had a major problem with one of these little O-rings before. Why, why would we think there would be a problem now? So they just overlooked these reports. They're just not going to pay attention to them. We're going to continue to move forward. And because of their pride and arrogance, seven people lost their lives that day. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of children were scarred watching it happen. Throughout history and time, time and time again, we have been marked by these moments. We, we say things are unsinkable, and then they sink. This is the danger that we have in being prideful people that fail to take criticism. And Kevin talked a lot last week about how, how we typically respond to criticism And today, I want to look briefly at what the Bible teaches us about giving and taking criticism. And finally, I want to look at criticism in light of the cross of Jesus and what that cross teaches us about criticism. So before I jump into what the book of Proverbs has to say, I want to just remind you of a couple things that Kevin said in his message last week, just in case you weren't here. First, I want to talk about what we mean by criticism, because definitions are important. It's important that we understand and we're on the same page as we're talking about something. Criticism is when another person judges you by declaring that you have fallen short of a particular standard. That standard may be God's standard, or that standard may be their standard. But Criticism is when another person judges you by declaring that you have fallen short of a particular standing or standard, excuse me. Now, like he mentioned last week, their judgment can be true or false. Just because somebody is leveling criticism against you does not automatically mean that that criticism is true and accurate. Why? Because we are all fallen. All of us have a fallen brain that sees things blurry at best. And so, this criticism may be given gently to correct. It may be given harshly to condemn. It may come from a friend. It may come from an enemy. Kevin talked a lot about Jethro not really being a believer as he's counseling Moses, right? But Moses listened to him. So what is our natural response? And this is something, again, Kevin went into a lot of detail, so I'm going to skim over it real quick. But just want to remind us, when we think about criticism, most of us, if we're honest, would say we would rather not be criticized. We would much rather be commended than criticized. One would much rather be the ones judging than the ones being judged. And we don't like Criticism. It stinks. And we have to recognize the idol of self here. The, the deep-rooted desire to place ourselves, our reputation, and our honor above all else. See, when, when we do that and we're placing that idol of self above God, we're saying we're above reproach. No, no longer is it God that's above reproach. No, now it's me that's above reproach. Kevin talked about that in the story of Jethro and Moses. This week, I want to look at the book of Proverbs and see what it has to teach us about how to respond biblically to criticism. So I want to start in Proverbs 12, 15. If you want to flip there, or we'll put it up on the screen for you. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 13, 10. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. That word insolence there means pride. By pride comes nothing but strife. Proverbs 17.10 says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a thousand blows into a fool. Or a hundred blows into a fool, excuse me. Wise Fathers and mothers will encourage and model the spirit of humility and wisdom with their children that we see here in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a book all about wisdom. This has been something that's been interesting to me uh, as we've lived out our lives and and encouraging not only me and my wife but other parents to to parent in a gospel-centered way. And one of the most shocking things about this is that we, we have to go back and confess and repent to our kids when we are wrong, right? This is the part that most parents struggle with when I talk about being a gospel-centered parent. Because the gospel is all about confession and us coming to Christ and saying, we are not good enough. We are sinners. We have sinned against you. We need you to save us. And I'm turning from my sin. I'm, I'm turning to you. This is the gospel message. Well, how does that apply to parenting? Well, as parents, sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we're selfish and we don't want to be bothered by these annoying little blessings that God has given us. Right? Sometimes we just want what we want, and we say and do things that hurt our children. And when we do, as gospel-centered parents, we should go back and confess to our children that, that in that moment, your father was feeling selfish. Your mother was feeling selfish, and he or she was wrong. And ask your children to forgive you. This is the point in which so many people look at me like I have a a third eye when I'm talking about parenting. Because maybe you, like me, grew up in a house where dad was always right, even when he was wrong. Mom was always right. You do not question them. I've even heard some people say, well, I'm trying to teach them about God because God's always right. Yeah, but you're not God. God. I don't know if anybody's told you or not, but you're not him. You're not helping your children come to know Jesus through the gospel by always being right. What that's created is a generation of people who actually reject the gospel because they don't make it past the first step of confessing that they are sinners. Sinners. Because they've never seen that modeled in their entire life. And this group of hard-hearted individuals, they, they come in with various ideas of ways they're going to earn salvation. They're going to make God happy with them rather than doing the one thing that God desires. And asks of them, which is to confess their need for him. And so by confessing to our children in those moments where we fail them, we are teaching them to do the very thing that he requires of us. The inability to take advice and correction and rebuke is not considered the mark of the wise. When we teach them humility and and confession, that, that is a mark of the wise, but it's It's also thought to determine the path of the wise. In fact, Scripture tells us both the wise and the foolish reap consequences according to their ability to take criticism. Proverbs thirteen three whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. Proverbs nine nine give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. And then finally in Proverbs 15, 32, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The wise recognize that there is gain in taking criticism. And it's no wonder that David exclaims in Psalm 141, 5, let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head will not refuse it. David knows the benefit of gaining wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And he recognizes that criticism from a godly person is always a kindness and an honor. It doesn't mean it doesn't sting. And sometimes it doesn't mean that the criticism is Largely inaccurate. It doesn't mean that the criticism isn't given with unkind motives. But David says it can still be a blessing. And it can still help you grow. If we have humility to listen to whatever in that criticism may be true. Is that how you look at criticism and rebuke? Is that how you look at criticism when you hear these proverbs and you hear how the wise take the rebuke? They take the criticism, they search it out in their life, and they seek to apply it wherever it is true. Again, I'm not saying all criticism is true, but a wise man listens. He doesn't just reject automatically, he listens, and he weighs out what is true and what is not. The wise men welcome it because it leads them to growing and knowledge. Is that the way you handle rebuke? If not, do you want to change? Do you want to go from the way that we sinfully handle correction? Again, Kevin talked a lot about that last week, so I'm not going to get back into that. Most of you know the fleshly response to criticism. I don't have to teach you that. Do you want to go from That way, to the way that God calls us to handle correction. We must want it if we're going to take the step from just being quick to defend ourselves against any and all criticism toward becoming like David who welcomed it as a kindness. We have to want it. So how do we want it? Well, the answer lies in understanding and believing in and affirming all that God says about us on the cross of Christ. Again, we have to find ourselves going back to the gospel. In Galatians 2.20, Paul claims that we have been crucified with him, with Christ, by condemning all that God condemns and affirming all that God affirms in Christ's crucifixion. In other words, we will never be able to welcome criticism as a kindness until we understand both God's criticism and his justification of us through Christ's cross. We will never be able to welcome criticism as a kindness until we both understand God's criticism and his justification of us through Christ's cross. Let's look at the, the criticism of the cross. First, the, the first step in the gospel is the same as the first step in understanding and applying the cross to criticism. In Christ's cross, we affirm that it's God's judgment on me. Criticism is just another word for judgment. One one reason that we find it hard to hear criticism from others is because we have not heard God's criticism on us. On the cross, we forget that God criticized us. See, God said we fell short of his standard. And because of that, he judged Christ for our sin. And that's why the apostle Paul declares in Galatians 2.20 that that I have been crucified with Christ. Have you ever claimed that before? Have you ever said that I have been crucified with Christ and believed it for yourself? Part of what that entails is recognizing and agreeing with God's judgment on each of us. The the admitting that that we have sinned against him, that there's no escaping the truth. I mean, God's word says there is no one righteous, not even one in Romans 3.9. As a result of my sin, the cross has criticized me and judged me more intensely and deeply and truly than any person on this earth will ever be able to. In other words, no one else's criticism of me can match the thoroughness of God's criticism of me. Knowing this, we can respond to all other criticisms by saying, this is just a fraction of it. You have no clue how bad I am. When someone levies a criticism against me, rather than having it destroy me, I can say, no way, man, this is, this is just a tiny little bit of the rest that you don't know. It it kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever talked to these people, and I'm not advocating this way of parenting, but their father rode them so hard, criticized them in every way. And then you try to criticize them and they just laugh at you because they're like, man, my dad said worse than that. Right? It's like when you understand what your dad has said about you, your heavenly father, When you understand his criticism and his judgment there's nothing that anybody can say that can make you do anything but laugh and say you don't even know the half of it If you understand God's criticism of us think about these two passages Galatians 3:10 for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. And James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. If you're clinging to being a good person this morning, if you're clinging to having some kind of righteousness in and of yourselves because of the things that you do, these verses should obliterate that. I don't care how right you try to live. It's never going to be right enough. If that's your hope this morning, I pray for you. Because it's not about what you can do. Because if you just fail one point, you failed all of it. You can't do it. God's word condemns us and it criticizes us for failing to keep the entire law and thereby breaking the whole law. A lot of these massive charges against us allows us, when, when any accusation is launched at us by other people, we realize that they're just mere understatements of what we've done. Furthermore, we can't defend ourselves as lawbreakers by trying to offset our sins with other good works. Look at James: to, to whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. Good works cannot make up for your failure. Once again, we see that the cross does not merely criticize or judge us as sinners. It condemns us for not doing everything written in God's law. Do you believe that this morning? Do you feel the weight and the force of this criticism, this judgment upon you this morning? And do you appreciate God's thoroughness in his criticism? Finally, in light of the cross, I must accept that my sin and my inability to keep the law deserves the ultimate judgment, which is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. As believers in Christ, we agree that this truth, when we say along with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ, I no longer live and our old, our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. In other words, our sin deserves death. And in the cross, our sin has been put to death. To claim to be a Christian, to claim to be a person who, is, who understands this criticism, this judgment upon, of, of God upon them. That, that's what it means to be A Christian. The Christian is someone who has stood under the greatest of all criticisms. And not only that we stood under this criticism, but we agreed with it. That's what it means to be a Christian. To to hear and understand fully, thoroughly that criticism and say, yes, Lord. Not Yes, but Lord. Yes, Lord. You don't try to defend yourself. You don't try to say, look what I did. Remember that one time I helped that old lady? I'm not all bad. I'm hearing your criticism. I'm seeing the thoroughness of your criticism, and I'm agreeing with all of it. This is the first step of accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior, is understanding your need for a Savior. You don't just just walk in and go, man, this stuff sounds good. Maybe I need to add this to my life. That is not the gospel, my friend. To be the gospel, you must understand the criticism levied against you. You must turn to him and confess that we are Sinners, that we are lawbreakers and we deserve death. I hope you understand and I hope you see how radical this confession is. But thanks to God, we can say so much more. We can claim and rejoice in the glorious reality of the justification of Christ. But before I move to that, let me caution you and warn you. Just because we, we take that step and we move to justification, that should never mean we forget who we were. If we're going to be applying the gospel in our life, we don't just wake up one day after salvation and just skip, justific- skip to justification. So what does justification of the cross look like in relation to, to criticism? Well, we must, we must acknowledge and see that we have to confess that we have sin and confess that sin to God daily. That This is an ongoing process in our life. When we apply the cross in the gospel, in the area of criticism, we must affirm God's justification of us. We're going to respond wisely to criticism. We must not only agree with God's judgment of us, but we must also agree with God's justification of us as sinful sinners. On the basis only of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, God justifies ungodly people. Let me say that again. On the basis only of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, God justifies ungodly people. Let me, let's let's think about that statement for just a minute and break it up. First, notice that God justifies. In other words, Christ has paid the penalty for our sin, and God has reckoned Christ's righteousness as our own by our faith in him. So we're justified, we're declared righteous in God's sight. And That's a glorious truth this morning. The, the God, that God is the one who justifies not us, but Him. But, but second, notice the last half of that statement. Who does God justify? Ungodly people. I, I love the way we sing that hymn at Christmas time. O come all ye unfaithful. Because I remember growing up and thinking, O come all ye faithful. Who. Who who should be singing this? I know my life. I know the times that I chose to not be faithful that week. Right? God justifies ungodly people. In other words, he justifies those who acknowledge their sin and trust only in God for their salvation, not in their own effort and good works. He justifies ungodly people, not godly people. Not good people. He makes godly the ungodly people. People who understand and feel the weight of God's criticism and judgment upon their lives. And this is what makes us boast, not in ourselves, but in Christ, in Christ alone. When I hear criticism with unbelieving ears, then I'm going to defend myself by boasting about my own works and my own performance. But now I hope you can see that that's not a biblical response. When criticism is levied against you and you start responding by, let me make my case or let me help you understand, let me tell you all the good things I've done, that's an unbiblical response to criticism faith in Christ hears and answers criticism by saying, the life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, I no longer have to try to protect myself and boast about my righteousness. Now I boast in Christ's righteousness, which I received by faith, not by anything that I've done. Solomon writes that pride or insolence breeds quarrels quarrels are often over who is right they're a result of our idolatrous demand to justify ourselves or those demands can be silenced and it's in that crossfire it is there that God justifies us that he declares me righteous and by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone It is there that I'm reminded that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And because of this, God has thoroughly accepted me. And with this foundation, I no longer need to justify myself. My foundation is no longer based on myself. And if it's not based on me, then I don't have to justify me. I don't have to defend me because of what Christ has done for me. God has justified me. Then who can condemn me if God declares me righteous, accepts me, and will never forsake me? Then why should I feel insecure and fear criticism? See, I think it's one thing for us to know this stuff. It's another thing for us to believe this stuff. And the difference is when we are constantly feeling insecure and fearful of criticism. That's showing that you may know it, but you don't believe it. Christ bore my sins and received. I received his righteousness. Christ took my condemnation and I received God's greatest approval. We're justified. Because when you get this in your heart, I'm telling you, folks, it changes the way you live, it changes the way you view criticism, it changes the way you receive criticism, it changes also the way you give criticism. Let's look at a couple of implications of our response to criticism in light of God's judgment and his justification for us. First, the first implication is this. We, we can face criticism with confidence. Because think about it. No criticism from another person can ever be greater than God's criticism. For those of us who are in Christ and have put our faith and trust in him, no one will ever be able to levy a criticism against you that is greater than the one God has done. And because of that, we can have confidence no matter what this person is about to say or tell me. It's not the worst thing I've ever heard. Because I've heard and believed and agreed with much worse. We can say in our heart, even if we don't say it out loud, you don't even know a fraction of my shortcomings. Tell me, I can hear it. Because Christ is so much more and continues to say so much more about my sin and my failings and my rebellion and my foolishness than anyone could ever say about me. So first, we can face criticism With confidence. Second, we can find comfort by seeing God's hand in criticism. We can remember that all the corrections and advice we receive from others, even those that are unfair, even those that are mean spirited, are sent from our Heavenly Father through His good and wise and perfect providence to test and purify us. A good example of this is seen in 2 Samuel 16. David, he shows Shimei, uh, when, when Shimei cruelly curses him and David's men want to kill him, but David commands them, leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has told him to. And it may be that Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing that I'm receiving today. David sees those who criticize him are ultimately sent by God. And instead of defending himself from attacking his, and attacking his accusers, he just submits himself to the Lord. So we can find comfort by seeing God's hand in criticism. Third, we can respond to criticism with a spirit of thanksgiving. When we begin to see the source of the criticism ultimately being from God, whether it's fair or unfair, we can respond with a spirit of Thanksgiving. Because rather than perceiving the most devastating criticism as a strike against who we are and everything we stand for, we begin to see it as a sweet, sweet mercy. Like David, we're able to declare, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Remember that from Psalm 141.5 we read earlier? As we consider the accusation brought against us, we will be able to thank God, I I am thankful for this correction. It is a blessing for me, even when it's wrong, even when it's misplaced. It reminds me of the faults that I do have. The sins for which my Lord and Savior died and paid dearly for when he died for me on that cross. that we can respond to criticism with the spirit of thanksgiving. Fourth, we can respond with humility and a willingness to learn from criticism. If we truly believe that criticism is a, a mercy and a kindness, we will be willing to hear it constructively with the patience to discern and distinguish what is truly valid. Knowing both God's judgment and justification of us on the cross... We will not be surprised or defensive when we are told about our blind spots. They are hidden faults. God has judged all our sins. God has covered all our sins. So we can listen to those criticizing and say, I want to learn from your criticism that are valid. Help me to understand. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that people that are struggling with confession aren't sinners, but sin concealers. We're all sinners. Every single one of us in this room is a sinner. But we make an active choice to be a sin concealer. The ones that are being deceptive are the ones who are trying to conceal their sin, trying to hide it. And the problem with deception is that we are often the ones who end up deceived. Deceived into thinking, ultimately, that we are not sinners. There are whole church movements of people who walk around and declare, I am not a sinner, I do not sin anymore. Who has been deceived? According to the Bible, the person that says, I am not a sinner. (laughs) Christ Christ has to remind us we have to have a humility and a willingness to listen and to learn from criticism because the problem with blind spots are they're in our blind spot and we can't see them. Fifth, we can respond to criticism with a spirit of surrender and no longer do we have to battle the condemnation of criticism because God has justified us. As the apostle Paul declares, who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? So we can accept criticism graciously rather than reacting with bitterness and defensiveness or blame-shifting responses that are typical that lead to the breakdown of relationships, right? When we respond like that, it destroys the relationships. It doesn't help the relationships. And finally, when we hear criticism, we can respond in a spirit of submission, recognizing that it's God's means of sanctifying us and and weeding the pride out in our hearts. But he doesn't stop there. His purpose is, is so much greater. He's seeking to replace our pride with Understanding and goodness and truth. He's teaching us to discern how to respond wisely to criticism, however just or unjust it may be. Think about this. I don't don't know if you've ever had this experience or not. Or maybe you haven't thought about the experience quite in these terms. but, But God has throughout the years when he sent people into my life to criticize me. And my first response in my mind, (laughs) if not also on my lips when I was younger, (laughs) um, but but in my mind is, who are you to tell me anything? I mean, your life's a hot mess. And you're going to tell me about this? But over the years, I've seen God use those people and those comments for the greatest good in my life sometimes. Because even though I may have it together in this area of my life that they don't, God knew I needed to hear what they had to say. And sometimes God uses what seems to you the most random of people to speak truth into your life that will change your life. Why? Because God loves you. And God cares for you. God continues to rebuke, rebuke, to correct, to chasten those that he loves. And he wants us to be humble and gracious, willing to take criticism with a spirit of surrender and submission. One of the ways that we can respond wisely is by learning how to give criticism graciously and constructively. Responding to criticism with these attitudes can produce Multiple benefits. Let me just give you a couple. First, these responses, they, they give us a sense of, of peace and confidence, right? Like we're not walking around on eggshells worried about what people are going to say about us anymore. We, we have a peace and a confidence about us. Second, they can help us to not create additional problems. I, I see this in counseling all the time. There was this one. Initial event, and then that initial event was handled poorly, and then that led to 10 more things, right? How many times are there additional problems created when we respond poorly to criticism? When we begin to blame shift, or we begin to make accusations about various people in the situation, when we seek to justify ourselves? It's interesting when you begin to have these responses to criticism in your life, One of the ways that you know that you have this response is by how people start to criticize you. It changes. It's different. You see, you start to notice people around you, they will start to qualify their their criticism differently. What I mean by that is instead of saying you never, they may suggest You know, sometimes you do this. This is something I've had to go over and over again with my children. And they probably hate this about me now, but I hope it helps them in the long run. But when they were younger, they would come to me and level a criticism and say, You never do this. And I'll stop them and I'll say, Well, we'll deal with the criticism. But first, is that statement true? Do I never do it, or do I sometimes not do it? And what I'm trying to do there, what I'm trying to teach my kids is how to criticize me better. Some of you say, well, my kids don't need any help with that. They're they're really good at it. (laughs) But I would argue it's not constructive. It's not helpful, criticism. Because, see, what, what what happens in your mind... If I say to you, you never do this, what do we do? What immediately happens? We think about that one time, 17 years ago, that we did it. (laughs) So your whole argument is now invalid because of that one point. I'm missing the point of what the person is trying to tell me because I'm so quick to defend myself and say, well, I did do it this one time, or I did it these five times. You don't, you don't seem to remember those times, right? What are we doing? We're now no longer talking about the criticism. We're talking about the qualifier of the criticism. If our if our criticism is going to be constructive, we, we have to think about the way that we criticize. So teach your children how to criticize you. So when they come to you and, and say, you always do that, or... Do, do do I always do that? Like, seriously? And then address whatever is being criticized. And I've noticed that over the years, they've changed the way that they talk to me. They're changing the way that they criticize. And and listen, there's still plenty to criticize. Um, As I'm reminded, I have teenage daughters. But... But they're doing it in a way that's much more respectful. The the implications of taking criticism in light of the cross are far-reaching. We don't have to fear man's criticism because we've already agreed with God's criticism. And we don't have to seek man's approval because we have something better than man's approval. We have God's approval. Perhaps this morning you've been convicted about the way that you react to criticism. And you desire to grow in this area, and you've you've heard me say that that you you can face criticism with confidence and that you can find comfort at seeing God's hand in it. Or or, or we can even respond to criticism with a spirit of thanksgiving. We can respond with humility and willingness to learn from criticism, or that we can respond to criticism with with a spirit of surrender and submission. But you may be sitting there going, How do I do that? That all sounds good, Dale, but how do I do that? I want to close with just a couple of practical steps that might help you to start dealing with criticism differently. First, critique yourself. Ask yourself these questions. How do I typically react to correction? How do I typically react to correction? Do Do I pout? Do I try to play down my error? shift the blame to somebody else? Do I seek to defend myself, boasting about my good deeds in order to prove that I'm better than the other person? Do I go on the attack and point out the other person's sin and every time they've messed up? You don't have to answer that out loud. Do I resent or harbor anger against the person who criticizes me? So the first question is, how do I typically react to criticism? Second, you can ask yourself, how well do I take advice? How often do I seek it? Are, are people able to approach me to correct me? Can my spouse or my parents or my children, my siblings? Am I a teachable person? After critiquing yourself and being honest about your answers... Ask the Lord to give you the desire to be wise instead of foolish. Read over the principles and the Proverbs that I mentioned today to remind yourself how good it is to be willing to receive criticism, advice, rebuke, counsel, and correction. And learn to meditate on these passages if this is something that you struggle with. Third, Focus on your crucifixion with Christ. While you might say this morning that I have been crucified with Christ this morning, you may not daily, or you may not walk daily in light of the cross and that crucifixion. You're not daily giving thanks for his justification of you. So challenge yourself with these two questions, and and if you continually Bristle against the criticism of people. Why don't you find some people that you know and and ask them to help you to answer these questions? So people that love you, people that care about you. And ask them how 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 do I respond to criticism? Am, Am I approachable? Because remember, guys, if you continually bristle at the criticism of people, how can you say, how can you know and agree with the criticism of the cross? If you typically try to justify yourself, how can you say that you know and appreciate and cling to God's justification of me through Christ? Asking these questions will drive you back to the cross to reflect on God's judgment and its justification of you as a sinner. And as you meditate on what God has done for you, you'll find your faith directed toward Christ. And it is by Christ that you will again affirm all that God says about you in Christ with whom you've been crucified. Finally, learn to speak nourishing words to others. I want to receive criticism as a sinner, as a sinner living within Jesus' mercy. So, how can I give criticism in a way that expresses mercy to others? Proverbs 15:1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. An accurate, balanced criticism given mercifully is the easiest to hear. It still may be hard to hear. But an accurate, balanced criticism given mercifully is the easiest to hear. If you recognize that you naturally would rebel even against accurate criticism, then you should be motivated to be loving when people speak the truth to others. When you speak the truth to others, excuse me. Work to be kind to everyone, not resentful and And teaching gently, you you see 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. You see that, and I will ask myself, how how can I best give an accurate, fair, and balanced criticism with much mercy and affirmation? My prayer this morning is that you begin to, to gain victory over this area of pride in your life. And even as Christians, we can be prideful. How do we do that? Well, we do that by skipping over the condemnation. And going straight to the justification, forgetting our need for a Savior. We can become prideful and arrogant. We can poke our chest out and say that we're we're God's people, that we are justified, forgetting that we were also condemned. And then as we continue to live our life, this pride grows in us and it creates wounds, it creates death in relationships. In the same way that pride and arrogance caused the Titanic to sink and the Challenger to explode, the same things happen to the relationships in our lives. They just keep exploding around us, leaving us all alone. This isn't the way of a peacemaker. A peacemaker is able to hear criticism, to take criticism, to receive it as a gift from God, And be able to look at that criticism and weigh it and say, this is true, this is not true. But if nothing else, I can learn how prideful I am that I don't want to hear my faults from another person. That in and of itself is teaching you something. Even if everything they say is inaccurate and wrong, and you begin to defend and justify yourself, then God has used that person to point out that there is still pride in your heart and you need to take that pride to the cross do you feel comfortable receiving correction this morning do you have a habit of responding with defensiveness and justification again if you're not sure of the answer to those two questions find someone that cares about you block out some time this isn't a hit and run kind of question right don't don't be asking people in the hallways out hey hey do I do, I do this <laughs> block out some time and listen and receive the gift that they are trying to give you it may be the greatest gift you get this holiday season let's pray father thank you for sending your son he he is the greatest gift And for those of us who have received that gift through faith. Father, I pray that you would help us to grow in this area of being able to receive criticism. To think through it. To weigh it out. What is is true, what is not true. And, And even if none of it is true, if we find ourselves trying to defend ourselves, that God, we will take that pride that that has been exposed to the cross. And we will praise you for working out another area of our heart that we have failed to turn over to you. Lord, thank you for sanctifying us. But thank you for justifying us, Lord. And Lord, I pray for the people in this room as we enter into a holiday season and we are around friends and family for gatherings and meals and celebrations, Lord, that that we will be people of peace. Lord, that we will take this challenge to heart to be peacemakers, Lord. May that start in our families first this holiday season. And Lord, may we be a church of peace. That that people would see us and know us for our gentleness and our mercy and our grace. Because we know and remember who we were as condemned sinners, desperately in need of your grace. keep that at the forefront of our mind to keep us from becoming prideful and arrogant about all the things we think we know about you. And enable us and empower us through your Holy Spirit to be your hands and feet going out into a world that is dying desperately in need of a Savior. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' precious name.